Bookworm Games, Episode 16, Bigger Inside Than Out. Welcome back. This is Wesley Schantz, and thank you again for listening. Hope, that wisp of straw in the stable. I hope that you'll continue to stick with me and have fun playing and discussing Earthbound, that you'll somehow hear whatever it is you're here to hear. We've come to one of the more bizarre stages of the game. I know I've said something similar before back in Saturn Valley, and I do intend to say so again at least a couple more times before the end of this journey, but to continue the discussion of Foreside this week under the aspect of Moonside poses some special difficulties, ones I hope will not prove insurmountable. In preparation, we gathered poems, practiced our philosophical language last week. I trust that's all fresh in your mind. You remember the bulldozer, the bridge between the labyrinth and the desert and the diamond layout city. And I've moved the Franklin badge, the platinum band, coin of defense, over to Ness's stuff from Paula's, and I suggest you do the same. First, to pick up where we left off plot-wise, we're in the dark, all the lights in the department store having gone out, just like the mouse said. This is why you always trust a mouse's sixth sense, your own for that matter. Fortunately, this is not a book that we're reading, though. It's a game, one that glows with its own illumination. Even in the darkness, we can read in the spaces between floors where the escalator carries you. The escalators are all still working, though the lights are out. And you can see by the light of the words over the intercom calling you to the fourth floor, which surely recall those of your friend who's just been kidnapped, whisked away from between you and the other friend she also called to help when you both were in danger like this before, back in the deranged hotel room ambush and the locked room under the graveyard in Threed. You can see, too, by the bright gift box disguised commodities crowding around your successive ascents. The hot coffees and electric guitars can be some of the toughest enemies up to this point in the game, and the spook at the top is vicious. But a big bottle rocket later, the smarmy kidnapper behind the desk is defeated appealing to Gigas, lest you forget. As is ever the way with these stories, obstacles and taunts and dangers make you stronger, shedding new light on your wisdom, courage, and friendship, those qualities which are at once the means and the end of your quest. Even also dimming the lights so that such words and gifts shine out the clearer. But where is Paula? I was a little mixed up at the end of the last episode, addled by poems and continental philosophy. This is not Moonside just yet. You can even leave the, leave the store before going upstairs, and you'll find everything outside is the same as ever. When the lights come back on, and the store is populated once more, you follow the tra trail of clues about Monitoli's whereabouts down to Jackie's Cafe. And talking to people you've already talked to in there, one of them, the broadly smiling lady by the bar, says something different. Something about the seventh-inning stretch and the fans singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game at the stadium. Only there's no stadium in Foresight, so it's supposed to mean that there was a noise out front. Maybe even a singing, collective kind of noise. And it also suggests that what's about to happen will be a game within the game. When you go back out, a crowd of townspeople have gathered around the shallow alley, all appalled and unable to look or move away from the figure in the Hawaiian shirt and black bowler, lying prone, face up on the pavement. Once more, you bribe someone with any item you can spare to get him to move aside, to allow you to move the game forward, 
by your generosity or impetuousness. Everdred tells you his version of the story, how he learned about Carpenter's secret, the glittering Mani Mani statue, how he stole it, brought it to the city to sell on the black market, only to have it stolen in turn. And it's this indignity, this reversal of fortune, as much as his grievous hurts, which seems to have brought him the great gangster low. The boss of Berglund Park doesn't even remark on Paula's absence, so said is he undying. He leaves you with a hint to check behind the bar. If you did so before, there was nothing. But now that you hear it from Everdred, it will be there, the way forward. He leaves you also with his final haiku. When on your way out, be sure that you say goodbye, then lock the door tight. With a last leer at the women gonkers, causing them to back away, and his self-image restored, or does he actually pick their pocket? Is removing pity, locking the door tight? Everdred stumbles off, zigging and zagging out to be alone like an animal about to die. His death is on his own terms. When you go back in and check behind the bar, three slow question marks, question mark, question mark, question mark, ensue. And with a whiteout, you find yourself plunged into Moonside. As a representation of the Dionysian element underlying everyday life, of the energy with which existence is shot through, Moonside is earthbound, it is in earthbound, like where the wild things are or Calvin and Hobbes' photo-negative comics, or like Hobbes himself, the rest of Calvin's imaginations careening through the door to greet him, or like the upside-down in Stranger Things, or like Coco's lavish world of the dead, or the impossibly lovely Art Deco slumberland of Little Nemo. This is just to say, we need not go all the way back to depictions in classical epic and drama, nor even to Nietzsche's essay on the Apollonian and Dionysian to get a feel for the underworld, the bizarro world of Moonside. And I resort to, or more to the point, indulge in references like these because I do hope you might be interested enough to look these things up if you don't know them already. I know it would be far-fetched to assign all this as reading, but then to expose you to it and encourage you, well, it's like footnotes again, it's illusions. And that root of that word, I think, is the same as in ludic, which we'll be talking about in a bit. Anyway, if what's being said is interesting enough, maybe you'll go then and read the sources and think about them, and see the world anew, if not lit up quite like Moonside. Or if nothing else, please accept these distillations of some good things I've managed to come by, share them around, like the whiskey jug in Jaber Crow, saying, good, good, good because it's the drinks you're inspecting, after all, when you're transported there. But here's Bogost, Ian Bogost, his book Play Anything, which is where I took my title for this episode. So he takes the going on a picnic word game as an example of how, by adding constraints, you make a game more interesting. Here's what he says. Suddenly, silly, forgettable activity, reciting words in order, becomes a compelling experience that warrants serious attention. The experience becomes much larger than the constraints that create it. By embracing more limitations, a seemingly meaningless idea becomes a more meaningful experience. This paradox of play, 
the idea that fun arises from limiting freedoms rather than enhancing them isn't only true of board games or card games or playground games or video games. It can be found in any kind of material whatsoever. If the imposition of external restraint hasn't been effective, why not embrace its opposite, constraint, the op adoption of controls and limitations from inside rather than outside a situation. Constraint has the flexibility to cover all forms of material construction across all media. Rules describe the internal logic of a system, but constraints delineate its edges, the membrane that contains these machines and separates them from other beings, creatures, devices, and experiences in the world. Constraints are the features that delimit both the system's characteristics and the user's possible actions. That's from page 140 of the book, Play Anything. Um, Bogost's concept here, when he says, reciting words in order, might well make you think of poetry. And that's one of his other chapters in here, which is a really interesting one. Um, his, his main concept, though, about the playground is uh, anchored in the start. In his love for his daughter, on the one hand, he tells a story of her uh, at the mall, and he's pulling her through from store to store. It says, years ago, I was running an errand at an upscale shopping mall in Atlanta where I live. I was in a hurry, rushing from one store to another to meet up with my wife. The mall was crowded and bleak, and I wanted to leave. I had my young daughter in tow. She was four years old or so. She clutched my hand as I steered us quickly through the throngs of weekend shoppers. I was moving too fast for her small legs, and she was struggling to keep up. But even as I felt her skipping between steps to keep up with me, I also felt her tugging me back intentionally, resisting my forward momentum, pulling me in another direction. When I looked down, I saw why. She was staring straight at her shoes, timing her footfalls to ensure she stepped within the boundaries of the square white tiles lining the mall floor. The sensations I interpreted as pulls and tugs had been caused by shifts in her weight as she attempted to avoid transgressing the grout lines while I pulled her forward and sideways around crowds. Everyone will recognize my daughter's improvisation. It's a variation, a variant of step on a crack, break your mother's back, a superstition of the late 19th century that developed into a children's game for sidewalks. But my daughter's version adds intrigue and complexity. Rather than resist or gripe about the admittedly unreasonable speed of my cadence, she'd chosen to subject herself to it. Since I was driving, so to speak, she didn't have to choose where she was going. This new freedom allowed her to focus on her feet rather than on human obstacles. But in so doing, she also surrendered control over her own forward motion. Ordinarily, step on a crack makes no assumptions about its player's motion. You could trail behind a group, stand still while plotting your next step or whatever. But for my daughter, my rapid and haphazard motion acted as a propulsion system. It was as if she was being conveyed through a carnival ride instead of by her own lo locomotion. She had to make quicker and more definitive decisions than she might have done otherwise. The result was pleasurable, vertiginous, challenging, and interesting. She made up a game. She was playing, as we say, often dismissively. She made the most of a mundane situation. She turned misery into fun. So that's kind of his argument. Uh, comes back to that anecdote time and again throughout the book. But then, on the other hand, it's also anchored in his study of play um, as a professional game developer and, and professor. And uh, particularly in a text that I mentioned the other day, uh, the Hoisinga uh, Homo Ludens, and um, it's one of the uh, seminal texts for a number of game writers um, and analysts 
that I was reading about in the uh, Humble Bundle that was released recently um, from MIT primarily. Uh, Bogost is one of the editors of those books. Uh, but Huizinga's book doesn't actually appear in the bundle, although it's cited by practically every single one of them. Um, here's an example from there. He's speaking of some general comments about play earlier in the book here. He writes, More striking even than the limitation as to time is the limitation as to space. All play moves and has its being within a playground marked off beforehand, either materially or ideally, deliberately or as a matter of course. Just as there is no formal difference between play and ritual, so the consecrated spot cannot be formally distinguished from the playground. The arena, the card table, the magic circle, the temple, the stage, the screen, the tennis court, the court of justice, etc., are all in form and function playgrounds, i.e. forbidden spots, isolated, hedged round, hallowed, within which special rules obtain. All are temporary worlds within the ordinary world, dedicated to the performance of an act apart. Inside the playground, an absolute and peculiar order reigns. Here we come across another very positive feature of play. It creates order, is order. Into an imperfect world and into the confusion of life, it brings a temporary, limited perfection. Play demands order, absolute and supreme. The least deviation from it spoils the game, robs it of its character, and makes it worthless. The profound affinity between play and order is perhaps the reason why play, as we noted in passing, seems to lie to such a large extent in the field of aesthetics. Play has a tendency to be beautiful. It may be that this aesthetic factor is identical with the impulse to create orderly form, which animates play in all its aspects. The words we use to denote the elements of play belong for the most part to aesthetics, terms with which we try to describe the effects of beauty. Tension, poise, balance, contrast, variation, solution, resolution, etc. Play casts a spell over us. It is enchanting, captivating. It is invested with the noblest qualities we are capable of perceiving in things, rhythm and harmony. Which, I mean, if that doesn't make you want to read that book, I don't know. I have found it so interesting. Now, Bogost in Play Anything, of course, as the title implies, takes this quite far and is open, I think, at times to the charge of arbitrariness. Um, he doesn't seem to have any idea of any hierarchy between games, uh, although, as Huizinga just points out, their uh, beauty might be a good category to start from, or other aesthetics. Um, but then again, uh, I think Bogos does a great job forcefully arguing against an ironical arm's-length hipsterism on the one extreme, or an overpassionate, angsty attempt at sympathetic engagement on the other. And Bogos' foil here is his look-like, uh, the late David Foster Wallace. Now, paying attention to things uh, a little bit, it becomes very easy to go all philosophizer on them. Um, Mike think of Plato's forms or Aristotle's thinghood and uh, Maritain's bound buried significance of things, which comes to via Aquinas and the Dark Ages, which in their sophisticated naivete took philosophy just as far as it was possible to go. Just as the likes of uh, Wittgenstein or Heidegger or their successors have done in the last century. That century which opened in revolutions, passed through dark conflag conflagrations of uh, world wars and closed in an anti-terror crusade. So 
Small wonder if we've exchanged a coherent, if unanalyzable and ineffable cosmos for that scientific and technological conjuries of mystery that we were looking at last time in Foresight. But I think Bogost's book is lucid and focused and offers a helpful way through some of the contemporary overheated intellectual and sociopolitical life. Um, he even pokes fun at himself with his joke about how you can count the pages until most authors in his field will cite uh, the work flow or the concept of flow. Um, I think that appears in his book on page 67, so that's pretty good. But uh, I think the joke <laughs> could appeal, apply as well to, to Huizinga, um, who, again, is not included in that humble bundle uh, of, of the MIT edited books, um, but all of which cite him, almost without exception, approvingly, uh, and almost always quite early in the book. Um, I think in Bogost's book, it's around page 11 that we get the first mention of the magic circle. Uh, but anyway, Huizinga, in his turn, cites uh, Schiller, uh, Plato, as he comes to describe the magic circle. And I'll read a little bit more from that because it's brilliant. We are hovering over spheres of thought barely accessible either to psychology or to philosophy. Such questions as these plumb the depths of our consciousness. Ritual is seriousness at its highest and holiness, holiest. Can it nevertheless be play? We began by saying that all play, both of children and of grown-ups, can be performed in the most perfect seriousness. Does this go so far as to imply that play is still bound up with the sacred emotion of the sacramental act? Our conclusions are to some extent impeded by the rigidity of our accepted ideas. We are accustomed to think of play and seriousness as absolute antitheses. It would seem, however, that this does not go to the heart of the matter. Let us consider for a moment the following argument. The child plays in complete, we can well say in sacred, earnest. But it plays and knows that it plays. The sportsman, too, plays with all the fervor of a man enraptured, but he still knows that he is playing. The actor on the stage is wholly absorbed in his playing, but is all the time conscious of the play. The same holds good of the violinist, though he may soar to realms beyond this world. The play character, therefore, may attach to the sublimest forms of action. Can we now extend the line to ritual and say that the priest performing the rites of sacrifice is only playing? At first sight it seems preposterous, for if you grant it for one religion, you must grant it for all. Hence our ideas of ritual, magic, liturgy, sacrament, and mystery would all fall within the play concept. In dealing with abstractions, we must always guard against overstraining their significance. We would merely be playing with words were we to stretch the play concept unduly. But, all things considered, I do not think we are falling into that error when we characterize ritual as play. The ritual act has all the formal and essential characteristics of play which we enumerated above particularly insofar as it transports the participants to another world. This identity of ritual and play was unreservedly recognized by Plato as a given fact. He had no hesitation in comprising the sacra in the category of play. He quotes, I say that a man must be serious with the serious. He says, Laws 7, 803, quote, God alone is worthy of supreme seriousness, but man has made God's plaything and that is the best part of him. Therefore, every man and woman should live life accordingly and play the noblest games and be of another mind from what they are at present. For they deem war a serious thing, though in war there is neither play nor culture worthy of the name, which are the things we deem most serious. 
Hence, all must live in peace as well as they possibly can. What, then, is the right way of living? Life must be lived as play, playing certain games, making sacrifices, singing and dancing, and then a man will be able to propitiate the gods and defend himself against his enemies and win in the contest. Now, The Laws is one of Plato's works that I've never read, so I have to make my way to that uh, in time here, but I think uh, we can get back to Earthbound in the meantime. And uh, besides looking surreal, like a chalkboard scrawled with neon, there's different rules in Moonside. There, no means yes, and yes means no. Kind of opposite day rules, or night. Rules are best thought of as the constraints within which freedom and fun become possible. Uh, fun being the explorations of latent possibilities and things. And when making sense of things from within, versus a, imposing a read onto them from without. Uh, I think here of, of the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, in his, uh, his class on Dracula in Mythgard Institute. Uh, he takes that as an example of a book giving you the words with which to understand it, so that you don't need to bring theories about vampirism and Victorian prudery from outside. And then on the other hand, uh, you might think of the lectures of Jordan Peterson, uh, where he frequently will include a read of uh, Piaget's moral judgment of the child. And then he'll integrate that with biological data on play in animals, from which he extrapolates to make a point against a kind of relativistic social constructionism of you know, imposing any read on any text. Um, and that's the sort of thing I think Bogost actually seems willing to leave himself open to. Uh, he cites, I think, Foucault with uh, with agreement uh, and approval somewhere in the book. Um, but anyway, uh, Peterson then goes on to make a point whenever he talks about these things, that games and morality, that sort of order within which freedom is possible, um, can be arranged in a kind of hierarchy based on the ones which people are actually willing to play, uh, ones which are uh, fun. And then similarly, uh, in his Bible lectures, which are really interesting. He'll draw freely on Jung and all the rest while staying uh, close to uh, his read of the text itself. Um, and I enjoy and learn as much from those lectures, which are so wide-ranging, as I do from, from Olson's close reads, um, in which, in his turn, he tends to bring to bear close knowledge of the Bible when he approaches most other works, including Dracula since most books do invite such a read. Um, here's a little quote from, from Dracula. This appears in chapter 16 of Dr. Seward's diary, continued. As to Van Helsing, he was employed in a definite way. First he took from his bag a mass of what looked like thin, wafer-like biscuit, which was carefully rolled up in a white napkin. Next he took out a double handful of some whitish stuff like dough or putty. He crumbled the wafer up fine and worked it into the mass between his hands. This he then took, and rolling it into thin strips, began to lay them in the crevices between the door and its setting in the tomb. I was somewhat puzzled at this, and being close, asked him what it was that he was doing. Arthur and Quincy, Junior also, as they too were curious. He answered, 
I am closing the tomb, so that the undead may not enter. And is that stuff you have put there going to do it? asked Quincy. Great Scott, is this a game? It is. What is that which you are using? This time the question was by Arthur. Van Helsing reverently lifted his hat as he answered. The host. I brought it from Amsterdam. I have an indulgence. It was an answer that appalled the most skeptical of us, and we felt individually that in the presence of such earnest purpose as the professor's, a purpose which could thus use the to him most sacred of things, it was impossible to distrust. So there you have, I think, some interesting evidence about the connection between games and the sacred on the one hand, and then also uh, some fair evidence as to the uh, hierarchy of some books' importance over others on the other. Uh, but anyway, besides playing with language, and there are more examples we'll look at in a sec once I say one more thing about reading, uh, Moonside confronts you with a host of new baddies, including Dolly's Clock, an abstract art, along with a hydrant and a fuel pump. So, essentially you fight against postmodernity in its most tangible guises, the artistic and the technological. Now, what should we make of that? Now, in The Master and His Emissary, Ian McGilchrist makes the comparison between art and game in postmodernity. He alludes, among other things, to T.S. Eliot's Wasteland as something of a dead end, an interesting cultural-historical document like Joyce's Finnegan's Wake rather than powerful poetry, although its borrowings make it gleam in places like a magpie's nest. That's just what the lens did in the desert, you'll call, and what we'll see the gold tooth do in a minute, or for that matter, the Mani Mani statue. So people imitating machines, like the slot machine Sanchez brothers, is a variation on the classic image of Descartes, wondering if the people outside his window might be automata. Apparently, this is a hallmark of schizophrenia symptoms. McGilchrist cites 20th century poetry as a bright spot among the arts and alludes to the potential for film. Thus, Tarkovsky being one of the few artists of whom one can genuinely use the term Shakespearean. But he does not address video games specifically. Another longer quote. With postmodernism, meaning drains away. Art becomes a game in which the emptiness of a wholly insubstantial world, in which there is nothing beyond the set of terms we have in vain used to construct meaning, is allowed to speak for its own vacuity. Where the author thought he was doing something important, even profound, was, in Wordsworth's phrase, a man speaking to men. The critic can reveal that he was really playing a word game, the rules of which reflected socially constructed norms, of which the author was unaware. The author becomes a sort of puppet, whose strings are pulled by social forces behind the scenes. He is placed. Meanwhile, the work of art gets to be decoded, as if the value of the work lay in some message of which the author was once more unaware, but which we in our superiority can now reveal. Separating words from the reference in the real world, as postmodernism does, turns everything into a nothing, life itself into a game. But the coupling of emotionally evocative material with a detached, ironic stance is in fact a power game, one that is being played out by the artist with his or her audience. It is not so much a matter of playfulness, with its misplaced suggestion of innocence, as a grim parody of play. It is familiar to psychiatrists because of the way that psychopaths use displays of lack of real, feel 
a jokey gamesy but chilling indifference to subjects that spontaneously call forth strong human emotions to gain control of others and make them feel vulnerable. Now, McGillicrist's uh, Master and His Emissary, I think, is a, another brilliant book in a curriculum in itself. Um, but I think he's woefully unaware of power of video games here. And, um, and I think it, it actually does uh, a disservice to his argument that he uh, speaks of, of life being a game as if that were um, lessening its value. Another language game comes in the Moonside Museum. There one of the visitors says, Whose bones are these? Bones, bones. Bone, bone, bone. Repeating a word like this until it changes to become just sounds. And in so doing, it sounds different. Until, consciously, we rejoin it to its meaning. To some context of surrounding words or images. And then it means differently than it did before. By that consciousness that we apply to it. It's like the dinosaur uh, abbreviated in this museum, only the torso. It's like the sections of the city carved up and jumbled around and invisibly separated by walls or by an abyss into which you stop short of a disappearing. When property becomes real estate and stacks of escrow and investments, divorced from the people and the culture meant to flourish there, because Manatoli, we're told, made his money in real estate, and now owns the government. Then you can be translated from one portion of the dismembered geography to another by talking to people, mostly the ones who look like lifeguards. Their hello and goodbye slides you away in the direction of the map in which you'll next appear. There's a flame pendant to be found to go with your night pendant, and an unusual item, a handbag strap, which can paralyze foes. Some of the denizens have prophetic visions of you burned and being fine, of a silver ball blasting into the beach. There's a creepy offer to sharpen you, a frightening identification with the enemies, as walking parking meters, and then you're laughed at. There's a chilling narration of losing HP down to zero. There's a poem about knives getting dull and soup getting cold, a hymn to the Mani Mani statue. And playing with the letters of welcome, to Moonside, jumbling them together to suggest demonic possession embodied in the gold statue. And the question is how much to make of all these words, how far their nonsense should speak for itself. It's always in the middle of the night there, in the hotel dark moon. The phone rings like on that first night of your adventure when your dad called. And here everything glows in outline in much the way the meteorite did. Once you complete this area, there is no coming back. Like that police car lit night on the hillside, or like threed under threat of the zombies and ghosts, Snowwood boarding school. Elsewhere, of course, the game allows and even requires you to retrace your steps to return to places, though the times have changed them, and your experience will lead you to see them anew. So what does this make you think about? You might want to look at those conversations that I've been having lately with, with uh, Alex Schmid for more on these topics. And you can share your own thoughts on Anchor, on YouTube, on the blog, etc. So, we're compartmentalized. And this disjunction between people, with only you bouncing around to talk with them all, was like that cultist observed you doing back in Carpenter's Church. 
Each of them is in their own dream. They have a collective only in its illusory and delusive nature. They're manipulated by the statue directly now, without mediation of a cult leader. For Monitoli himself is clearly a thrall too. To Mani Mani, that name ringing like money, echoing manna, the promise of bread in the desert, connoting multiplicity and mammon and more and better, the greed for more for its own sake, reminding you of the lonesome strength of liar exaggerate who first dug it up beneath the meteorite. It's like the Emmy Award in form, but horned, Luciferian counterpart to the humble buzz buzz. A sailor blocks your way to Monitoli at the foot of his tower, praying before the golden idol. The sailor will move aside as promised once you arrive with the invisible man from Mr. T's cul-de-sac of a room, the shade whose eyebrows are connected, Frida Kahlo-esque, who grins to show you his gold tooth. So you must believe, being unable to see what the sailor evidently can, at which point they elope. It's like the bubble monkey before, and the urim and thummim black and white sesame seeds in the desert, which you have brought two people, things, items, together as part of your story. But unlike those lovers in the lobbies of the shows and on the way out of Threed, their meeting here seems to be a happy one. And as you see, when the Manis Mani statue is destroyed, whether you do it by the big bottle rocket again, quickly, or with painstaking, turn-taking, strategic moves, and some luck avoiding its killer attacks, its evil is still subordinate. It was actually an illusion-making machine, broken now. But Paula is still missing, and Foresight is still under the thumb of Monitoli and denying his weakness in visiting the cafe to dwell in and worship illusions himself the pawn of Pokey or of Gigas, if we recall the department store spook. There's another mouse here, or is it the same, explaining that you've been wandering around the back room, perhaps mistaking its stacks of boxes for those bulwarks of chaos and old night that separated the habitable sections of Moonside from one another. And I do worry that I sometimes am doing this here too, making much of things that in themselves are without quite the meaning that I described to them. Now, on stepping outside once more, there's a series of events in quick succession. You hear about the invention and then the mistaken delivery and neglected class of the uh, trout-flavored yogurt machine. You uh, hear about Apple Kid going on a journey to work on the phase distorter with Dr. Ann Donuts, the wandering scientist. And then the maid overhears about the yogurt machine and requests that you bring it to her at Monitoli's, uh, his building. And then you got to go back to the desert to find it in the cave of the levitating guru, Talarama, whose headgear looks sort of like the, the swirl of a soft-serve frozen yogurt. While you're down there, don't miss the bag of Dragonite and the broken tube, which will become a bazooka, and some further jokes about language being perpetrated by the monkeys. The music in their home, that paradise under the desert, is a distorted version of the same Pollyanna theme. Though it's a while now since you visited a sanctuary spot, the silence in Talarama's own chamber swells to the tune of cosmic harmony as if you found such a place. 
and in a sense you have, for he's a kindred spirit. Here are his prophetic, scientific words. In the English translation, The truth of space and time moves through the universe like a wave. Truth speaks through space and matter and makes itself known to human beings. I was waiting for you, and you came. This was destined to happen. In truth, all is predetermined. Ness, Paula, Jeff, and Pooh, where these, when these four powers gather, twisted space will bring back peace to the world. Now, Everdred, like Buzzbuzz, will repeat his dying words, but he keeps count if you make him do so. Talarama, on the other hand, won't repeat those words. So I got that again out of the translation book that I like so much. Um, and if you choose no when he asks you if you want to uh, learn a useful new skill, he'll laugh in your face, knowing full well that you'll need it to complete your destiny, which is predetermined. In uh, transparent reverse psychology, he tells you not to talk to the monkey standing there, in line with your evident contrarian streak. And then don't miss in those golden chests next to him a brain food lunch, a cup of life noodles, as wages for your patient trading with the monkeys all the way through the cave. Outside, we get the pantomime of a teaching demonstration, a brief explanation, and then trying it out under optimal circumstances. Teleportation down the long, clear straightaway of desert highway, which you need to use to build up speed until you learn to do it in a circle. And of course, you have the optimal motivation as well, having been cooped up, maybe for a while, trying to get through that cave, and still wanting to find Paula. And uh, speaking of distorted space, we get more of that in the Monotoli building, with its own bland reflection of Moonside, or Talarama's words about the cosmic space and time, uh, wave. Here we have in the Montoli building unsettling geometry of rooms and corridors that connect in impossible ways. And anyway, somewhere back there, beyond the century robots, counting down from ten to zero every time, beyond the maze of empty boardrooms, strangely like barren classrooms, is Electra, the maid's room. For bringing her the yogurt dispenser, she gives you a cup of trout yogurt. And through the next hall is a much more dangerous sentry robot, the clumsy robot. There is no way to defeat this foe. With his agile bumbling and his bottomless supply of bologna sandwiches and rockets, the best you can hope for is to survive enough rounds to allow the runaway five to turn up and turn off the clumsy robot laughably easy once they spot the on-off switch. At last, we're reconnected with Paula. She has tried to comfort the shell of a man that Monotoli has become, and she speaks up for him while reaffirming her trust in you, and then rejoins the party and allows him to tell his story. Like the king in the old tale, he saw the writing on the wall, Cryptic words, glowing in the darkness, which led him out of his depth, or let him know he was long out of it already. So sorry and repentant is he now, he wishes to give you his helicopter to travel to Summers, 
where the words did not want you to go. There's hints, too, of a pyramid there, which sounds promising, until Pokey steals the helicopter. In this moment, if not before, we see the redemption of Geldegard Monitoli. He says, I hope he's okay. And there's great pathos there. Also, in thinking about Earthbound as an illusion-making machine, um, thinking about the quality of those people encountered within the game, within the illusion, who seem to have their own stories, who certainly have their own poems. Now, it's a little undermined, of course, by the uh, bathroom humor from the Runaway Five, and uh, get a rollicking trip back to Threed in their tour bus. An encouragement from Lucky. He says, think of us singing somewhere far, far away. Now, I always thought of that as making me think of summers, and uh, that's where we're headed next week. Until then, take care.